You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. Today, uh, let's dive into the message. We are in the final message of our series, Unpause, How to Break Spiritual Stagnation. Uh, And I've enjoyed this series if you haven't. Uh, I've enjoyed it, and I believe that God is in the business of getting us unstuck. He's in the business of calling us higher, of moving us forward. And that word stagnation means that when something is, has once been flowing, it stops flowing, it dries up. Or, or when uh, something has been advancing and moving forward, that it stops progressing. And in God's kingdom, there really is no such thing as standing still. In our spiritual lives, there's no such thing as standing still. We're either moving forward or we're going backwards. And I believe God has not created you and I to go backwards. He's created us to move forward. And uh, today I want to focus, and in fact, if if you've missed any part of this series, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to the messages because I believe it'll encourage you but equip you uh, to grow in your faith, to to win the battle in your mind as we talked about last week, to to build your prayer life, uh, to, to allow God's word to transform you. Today, we're going to to talk about how to maintain the gain, maintain the gain. And, and I believe it's important that not only do we make forward progress, but we keep it. Not only do we grow, but we keep growing. Not only do we advance in some areas or, or find freedom, our church exists to see every person know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, discover purpose. And I believe that when freedom comes, it's, for the, it's to set us free for the purpose of God. It's to bring us into a relationship with the God of the Bible. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Isn't that wonderful that Jesus came for a purpose and he came to to forgive us of our sins through his work on the cross as he would take our sin and shame on himself, die in our place. God so loved us that God was not content to have a heaven without you. And so he sent Jesus for you to rescue and redeem and restore. But then he also brings freedom into our life. What does freedom look like? Freedom isn't just, you know, freedom to do anything, to go anywhere, but it's actually, more importantly, a freedom from something that is destructive, from the power of sin. Freedom from, uh, and I'll just be honest, 80, 80% of my issues usually are me. Anybody else? Okay, three of us. We got, we got our small group right there. We're, but, but here's what happens when Jesus sets us free from us. He sets us free from our own issues that keep us from who God has actually created us to be. He sets us free from pride and self-seeking, and he sets us free from shame. Jesus does not want you and I living in shame. He sets us free from fear. Fear is not meant to be your inheritance. God has not given you a spirit of fear. We talked about that last week. What has he given you? Power, love, sound mind. But, but if he hasn't given you fear, then that means that it doesn't belong in your life any longer. I'm, I'm, always, uh, I'm always stirred when I see people who are believers in Jesus, who spent years in the church, and yet religion has maybe kept them from or not told them that Jesus came to bring full and total freedom to their life. We settle for good enough, but Jesus wants us totally and completely free, really free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, therefore stand firm. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke or a a, a, a snare of slavery. Don't be burdened again by slavery. And so this is important because there are things that dictate and direct our lives that Jesus came to set us free from. 
They're the very things that are keeping us from advancing, keeping us stuck. And yet, when Jesus sets us free, we need to do the second part of what this verse says. We need to stand firm. And don't allow ourselves to lose the gains we've made. Another version says this, let me be clear, the anointed one has set us free, not partially, but completely and wonderfully free. Aren't you glad for that? He set us wonderfully free. So we must always cherish this truth and stubbornly refuse. Stubbornness can be a good thing sometimes. Stubbornly refuse to go back into the bondage of our past. In Galatians, the church, people would come to faith in Christ. Gentiles would come to faith in Christ. And and the religious crowd would come along as religion does and add burdens that God never meant for us to carry. And, And people came along and said, well, Jesus is good, but you need all this other stuff. And you need to add all this other stuff. And Paul says to them, listen, what you gained in Christ, what you gained in Jesus, you've got to stand firm for. Don't go back to the old things. Don't go back to old idols. Don't go back to old religion. Don't go back to the thing that can't set you free. Jesus brings true and lasting freedom. Philippians, Paul would say elsewhere in Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on to reach the end of the race. To receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. I'm just going to have that on auto response on my email. Anyway, um, verse 16. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. We must hold on to the progress we have already made. Some of you have made incredible progress and, and you're so focused on, and I, I get this way too, I get frustrated because I look at, I, I'm not where I want to be or some things aren't moving the direction I always want them to at the speed I want them to, but we need to recognize that we've made progress and we shouldn't surrender that progress. If Jesus sets you free from fear, don't give fear a place in your life. If he sets you free from shame, don't give shame a place in your life. If he sets you free from addiction, if he sets you free from anything that is keeping you from progressing, do not surrender the ground. You can be stubborn. Come on, I just gave you permission to be stubborn in a godly way. All right, so, so I want to start with, I'm going to give you a lot, but let me go through these quickly. But the first, I want to start with the negative, and then we're going to end with the positive. But here's the first on how to lose the gains we've made. And these are, these are six quick things that I believe can lead us to lose uh, when we have these mindsets or we have these uh, approaches to life. Uh, and the first one is very simple. Number one is we forget where we came from. We forget where we came from. In Deuteronomy 4.9, when the children of Israel were set free from Egypt, they had been in Egypt for 430 years as slaves, harshly oppressed brutalized, mistreated, and, and not only that, but many of them were put to death. Pharaoh, at the very end, to try to keep their population from growing, made a, a plot to have every young boy put to death after birth to keep the population from growing. And so there's this massive assault against the people of Israel. And Jesus, or God sets them free, he sends Moses, and, and through his power, he delivers them out of Egypt, and, and he brings them out of freedom. And that, I, I got to say, that's got to be the most happy, celebratory day the Israelites ever had, was the day that they were set free from four centuries. That's longer than America. The United States has been a nation. They were set free from four centuries of slavery. They were brought into the wilderness to be taken to their promised land. But Moses reminds them of something very important. He says, take heed to yourself. And diligently keep yourself. 
lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. What's he saying? He's saying God set you free. He brought you through the Red Sea. He parted the waters. He fed you manna from heaven. He brought water from a rock. He did all of these miraculous things, but there's something about human nature, and I've experienced this myself, that there's sometimes I think I'm never gonna forget this God until I do. There's just something about us. I've seen the miraculous hand of God where it's undeniable and I've seen God work, but then moments later I get discouraged and I, I get worried or I get whatever and I, I, I begin to lose the ground that God's brought me into and Moses says to them, he says, don't forget, keep yourself and don't forget the things which your eyes have seen. Well, if you know the story of Israel, not long after this, in Numbers 14, they come to the edge of their promised land. And they're about to step into the very thing that God said, I brought you out of Egypt to bring you into this. This is where I've brought you for. This is what I've saved you from slavery for this promise. And they're about to enter. And all of a sudden, they realize that to get that promise, they're going to have to fight. There's some progress in your life that isn't automatic. There's some things that require a fight. Why? Because the devil is so terrified of what you'll become and what you'll walk in as a believer in Jesus that he will fight you tooth and nail. Now, you may be wondering, well, I never had a fight. There was no such thing as spiritual warfare when I was lost. It was because you were on Team Satan. No, okay. <laughs> There's Team Jesus and Team Satan. Okay, I, anyway, I, Secret Sense of Sunday. Okay. And, and, and here's, here's where he's at. The, the, the enemy fights you because you're no longer playing for his team. And that's why he's trying to discourage you. And that's why he's trying to tell you lies. And that's why he's fighting your progress. But God has a promise and he has a purpose. And, and Israel comes to this battle and they go, oh, it's a little hard. It seems a little difficult. You know what they tell Moses? They begin to complain in Numbers 14. I'll just read this last part, uh, verse three. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? In other words, why do we have to fight for this? Why did God bring us this far to leave us here? And that's obviously not true. God wouldn't leave them there. They said that our wives and children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Wow. How can they say that? I think something about us is there's just something in human nature where even things that were worse, we were worse off, we go, well, it was easier. I didn't have to fight and overcome temptation. I didn't have to deal with the spiritual battle. I didn't have to, I didn't have to deal with opposition and people misunderstanding my faith and any of that stuff. And, and they're just, here's what they say, it was better to be slaves. And that's not true, obviously. And so in verse four, they said, hey, let's pick somebody else instead of Moses. <laughs> When you forget you have a future, you'll always go back to your past. Number two is we live for the opinions. When we live for the opinions of others, we stop maintaining the gain. When we live for the opinions of others, uh, Israel would take that promised land a generation later, and then they would cry out to God, give us a king. So God, while he was grieved by this, he does give them a king named Saul. He chooses Saul. He calls Saul. He anoints Saul. But there's a problem Saul has. See, Saul looks the part. Like if you were to see Saul in a crowd, you would go, that guy is king material. He's, he's tall enough to be on an NBA team. He's handsome enough to be on a GQ cover. And that guy looks the part. But he's got a little problem. He's got insecurity. He's got insecurity. 
And when they call him, he's hiding. It's in the story. You can read it. He's hiding among the luggage, trying to keep from somebody picking him to be king. And they find him and they make him king because God did call him. And then when he becomes king, he comes to his very first test. His first test is a battle. And for a lot of us, we made progress and our first test is a battle. I know you prayed for those 21 days. I know you prayed for your family. And all of a sudden, it seemed like all hell was breaking loose. Why? Because God's working on your family. God's bringing miracles and the devil doesn't like it. I'm just trying to help somebody in here. Because we go, why in the world? I prayed for this. Why is the opposite happening? (laughs) And we misinterpret that battle as a sign that God won't. In fact, the battle is prophetic of what God is doing and what he will do. I already forgot where I was at. Okay, let's go back to this. The first thing is a battle. Saul's there to fight. He gathers the armies of Israel. And here's what happens. The Philistines show up. And King Saul's about to have his first test. He's got his troops and, and he's starting to get confident and his troops are pretty confident because it, it, it sounded like a good idea to gather your swords and gather your armor and show up to fight and, and they're ready for the battle because everybody likes the battle when it's hashtag battle. Post a selfie with Saul, we're ready for the fight and then all of a sudden the enemy shows up and they outnumber them three to one. And they look at what's in front of them and they begin to evaluate, is it really worth my life? Is it really worth the cost? Is it really worth the sacrifice of maintaining what I've gained, of maintaining our ground and fighting for our family? Is it really worth it? And they begin to hide from the power of the enemy. And Saul looks at the people with him and because he's an insecure leader, he begins to disobey God's command. You can read it in 1 Samuel 13. He disobeys God's instruction. He disobeys God's instruction and he's moved more by the people leaving him than what God said. And when you live for the opinions of others, I'm not talking about, do you want to be loved? Do you want to be accepted? That's, that's good and healthy. But when you live for people's praise instead of God's praise, you'll always make the wrong decision. When you live for people's opinion over God's opinion, you'll always make decisions on temporary hurt, temporary pain, temporary feelings. And Saul would go on to not deal with this insecurity so badly that God would say, your kingdom that should have lasted forever will not endure. He was earthly successful, but he had lost the gains that he had made. God would raise up David, the next generation. We'll talk about him in a second. God would raise up David, kill Goliath, and David would be anointed to be the next king. But you know what happened? Saul, who's insecure, begins to attack David because insecure people will always attack others to make themselves feel better. And and, and so so when we live for the opinions of others, we begin to lose the gain that we made. Uh, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare. Can I just ask you, is there something that God has called you to do, to lay down, a decision, a step he's called you to take, but in the midst of that, you go through the list in your head of all the people that won't like it? Do you talk yourself out of trust and obedience to God because of what all the people's opinions are going to be and what people are going to think and what they're going to say and we're in a small town and everybody knows my business and no... And you hesitate and you make decisions like Saul on on who's going to leave instead of the God who says, I'm going to make what you're doing endure. Okay. So when we live for the opinions of others, we lose the gains. Uh, Number three is we disconnect from our purpose. When we disconnect from our God-given, God-breathed purpose, we begin to lose the gains. Here's what I mean. Um, So David would come along. David would be the most successful leader in Israel's history. 
He would usher in a golden age in Israel, so much so that his son was set up to succeed. But, but David had a major failure in the middle of his story. David committed adultery and then committed murder to cover up. It was like a mafia story. It was like reading, you know, episode of the Godfather Israel edition. It was, and, and, but in the midst of his, and some of us go, man, you know, everybody knows my business. They know my mistakes. They know, listen, try being David and everybody who ever reads the Bible reads about your worst day. <laughs> so be encouraged. <laughs> but David Here's what happens. Here's why David, and I, I love the redemption of God, that God restored, and there's no sin that God can't forgive, and David would go on to have great success in the kingdom of God, as God defines it. But here's what 2 Samuel 11, 1 says. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David, who is king, sent somebody else. He sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. In the time when kings, what did kings do in the spring? Well, in winter, you don't go outside, much like today. Anyway, but they go to battle in the spring. It's the time, it's the season, it's the moment for the purpose of a king to fight for expansion, fight for his people, all of that. And when David should have been doing what kings do, living out his purpose, David said, I'll let somebody else go. I'll, I'll, I'll sleep in a little bit. I'll phone it in. Somebody else, I, I know I've prayed. I know I fasted. I know I saw God. But I'm just, I'm just going to let somebody else do it for a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let somebody else stay in their purpose, and I'm going to take a break. And David disconnects from his purpose, and you know what happens? He ends up on a rooftop, and he looks over, and he sees this babe Bathsheba, who's on the rooftop. Her husband's at war. Her husband is doing what David should be doing. In fact, David knows her husband. Her husband's fought for him. But David doesn't care about any of that stuff for, for the moment because all David can be thinking about is what he shouldn't be thinking about because he's not engaged with his purpose. See, in the kingdom, in God's economy, it's not just don't do this, don't do that. You know, try to keep yourself from temptation. And, but, but many of us sometimes can make the battle over temptation a losing battle because we're not first connected with our God-given purpose. If David had been to war, he wouldn't have been on the rooftop, is what I'm trying to say. He wouldn't have been in the place where he would position himself for temptation. You've got to decide before you ever get in the storm of temptation who you're going to be and what you're going to do. And when you connect with your purpose, that's why it's so important for every person, every believer, to, to say yes to the call of God on their lives. Because when you connect with your purpose, you don't settle for less, you don't compromise who you are, because God has called you to more. I think we have a problem in our culture. In fact, I know we have a problem in our culture that disconnects from real purpose for a counterfeit. And, and I mentioned success. Heaven defines success very different. I believe heaven defines success as significance. In the world, success is measured by how much we can accumulate, how much we can accomplish, how many accolades we have, how many titles are on our name. We can have all these things, how many houses we own. We have all this stuff and we go, that's success. In fact, we look at success as when I get to that place, when I work hard here, I don't have to work hard anymore. And that's just the end of success. Success is temporary. Success is fleeting. Success is short-term. But when you live for significance, 
a God-given significance, it doesn't matter whether or not you've accumulated as much as that person or accomplished as much as somebody else. Instead, you're living for something that outlasts your retirement, outlasts your kids growing up and moving out of the house. You're living for significance, eternal God-breathed significance. David was meant to be in a battle, a battle with his name on it. You know, David actually never lost a battle when he fought God's battles. He had a secret to his success. He, he, he had a secret and it was significance. He found and fought only God's battles. In your spiritual life, when you take ground, when you advance, you're living for something that's eternally significant, not something that's short-term success. Number four is we lose our awe of God. Here's how we lose our, or, or, or stop maintaining the gains that we've achieved. We, we somewhere along the way as a believer, and this is one of, I think, the saddest things as a Christian that we can, we can accomplish or we can move into is we can lose our awe of God. And what do I mean by that? So when I first came to Jesus, I was overwhelmed by the goodness of the gospel. The goodness of God that he would save me, that he would forgive me, that I knew me. Like other people may not have known me, but I knew me. I know what Jesus saved me from. I know what my Egypt looked like. And I'm, I, I, the, the more I looked and beheld, like we sang about, the goodness of God and the glory of God, the more I recognized as I worshiped and said, God, you, were, you forgave me and you redeemed me and you restored me and I, I'm, I'm so grateful. I, I developed an awe of God. And, and, and in the Bible, the Bible defines the awe of God like this and it's a phrase that's kind of out of fashion now, but it's a biblical phrase. It's a biblical term, and it's what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And the reason we maybe don't use it as much in the church anymore is because of its misunderstanding that people look at the fear of the Lord. In fact, the fear of the Lord appears 14 times in the book of Proverbs, starting with the statement that, that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the starting point. I think right now our generation's reaping the effects of taking the fear of the Lord out of us pouring into the next generation. We wonder why the world is in the condition and we, we can complain about it, we can point the fingers at it, but it all starts with the foundation, the foundation of the awe of God. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's a reverential awe. It's a recognition that God is greater and God is amazing and God is holy and God is set apart, but he drew near. And, and, and Israel, when they met with God at Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and to enter into covenant with God, here's what happened. God shows up on the mountain, and man, he showed up in smoke and fire, and, and you know, everybody likes when gentle Jesus, meek and mild, shows up, but then when the lion shows up, it's like, oh boy, Jesus, would you stop turning tables over? This is, you know, okay. But, but uh, So God comes down on the mountain, and they tremble. The people tremble, and Moses says, wait a minute, guys. Don't be afraid. God has shown up to see if his reverence or his fear is in you. It almost sounds like a contradiction. He says, don't be afraid. God wants to see his fear. And, and we read those words as thinking that it's talking about being afraid of God. Fear brings torment. Being afraid brings torment. And Israel does something in response. They turn back and they say, Moses, we are terrified by this God. You go talk to him and we'll stay over here and do whatever you say to us. 
And Moses instead draws near. Because when you live your life with a reverence of God, and awe of God, you can't help but draw near to God. Don't ever be afraid of God. Don't run from God. Run to him. When you fall or fail, don't run from God. He doesn't cast away people who come to faith in Jesus. The Bible says, come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help in time of trouble. It's a lie from the pit of hell that says, run from God. But when we lose our awe of God and we lose our reverence of God, we settle for less. We, here, here's what the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 6. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. God's love, his faithfulness that we see displayed in the work of Jesus. He loved us and he wants to show his covenant faithfulness to every single person in this room. And through his love and faithfulness, our sin was forgiven. It was paid for. That's what atonement means. He paid the price. There is no reason to run from God when he's paid the price. The thing that, kept, the, the thing that created distance, Jesus died for. So we can freely come to him. He's already paid the price for your sin. He's already sacrificed his life and laid it down because of his great love for you. And today, I'm gonna to give you an opportunity at the end of this service, if you've never given your life to Jesus, to respond to that to respond to the love and faithfulness of God. Then he takes it further in verse six. He says, through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. The reverence of God, through understanding that God's love and faithfulness made a way, and, and by honoring God in my life, there's things that I'll avoid. There's things that would cause me to lose the gains that God's made in my life. That's what the fear of the Lord creates in me, a sense of the awe of God. And number five, quickly, uh, is, is we, and I think this is a result of losing our awe of God, is we begin to flirt with what used to hold us captive. I know I'm giving you a lot today, but bear with me. In the Bible, Samson is a successful man in an earthly sense. Brings great victory, fights great battles. He's stronger than anybody else by the gift of God. But Samson's got an issue. He's constantly flirting with the thing that can kill him. And we see this culminate when he met a girl named Delilah. He meets Delilah in verse, chapter 16, verse 4. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Delilah's name means weakening. <laughs> uh, the lords of the Philistines came up to Delilah and said to her, um, entice him. And find out where his great strength lies for us. And by what means we may overpower him. That we may bind him to afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah says to Samson, hey, honey, can you tell me the secret of your strength? And Samson is either ignorant of what she's doing or he's willingly ignorant. And I think it's the latter. Because he talks to Delilah, and he says, you know, he kind of plays around with it. He says, um, you know what you can do? You just get some, get some fresh bowstrings and tie them around. And, 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 and I, I'm going to lose my strength. <laughs> and, of course, she does this, and, and all of a sudden, Philistines show up. Of course she's working with them, Samson. And they show up and try to overpower him, but he's still got his strength. And he breaks free. And there's some things we look at as justifiable because some things that used to work are still working even though we've compromised who we are. 
And, and, and Samson breaks free and he overpowers the enemies. And then Delilah comes to him and says, she says, you lied to me. You need to tell me what the real secret is. And, and he makes him something else. Guess what happens? She does what he told her. And once again, the Philistines show up. I don't know when this guy's going to get a clue. It happens over and over and over until finally, here's what, what it says. Uh, verse 15, how can you say I love you? If you really love me, here's what you'll do, even if it's compromise. You didn't hear me. If you really love me, I told you last week, find somebody that loves Jesus more than you. Okay. It's quiet in this church today. Um, <laughs> I used to say it's quiet in this Presbyterian church, and people thought we were Presbyterian, so I got to stop saying that. Okay. How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times. You've not told me where your great strength lies. So it came to pass, she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. And then he told her all his heart. He said, no razor's ever come on my head. I'm a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I'm shaven, my strength will leave me. It wasn't because of his hairstyle. It was because of his consecration to God. It's a source of his strength. He says, if you cut my hair... It's never been cut. I'll become weak and be like any other man. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, said, come once more, for he's told me all that's in his heart. The lords of the Philistines came up, brought the money to her. She lulled him to sleep on her knees. She called for a man to shave the seven locks of his head, and then she began to torment him, because what sin promises, it leaves you asleep. It leaves you tormented. And the result of this whole experience was his strength that he once had left him. I think this is one of the saddest stories in the whole Bible. She says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'm going to go out as before at other times and shake myself free. There's some things that you can outrun when you're younger that catch up with you. There's some things that work in one season but don't work anymore. I don't, I don't know how to say this, but I just think we're in a time, even in our nation, where God's not helping us the way he used to help us. Not that God won't help us, and not that God won't, but there's something that happens. There's almost a season where we have to recognize that, that some stuff doesn't work anymore, and some things have consequences, and we need Jesus to redeem and restore. And that's why the, the answer to a, if I could just, the answer for our nation is Jesus. We're going to look to a whole lot of answers, but there's only one answer that's going to save our families. There's only one answer that's going to reach North Iowa. It's Jesus. And they take him, the Philistines take him, they bind him, they bring him down to a mill and they chain him to this mill and he has to grind grain with the mill every day of his life. This champion, this warrior, this one who God had called, the one that was, was anointed to be the Nazarite and the deliverer of Israel was now grinding his, through his existence and they put out both of his eyes so he can't see anymore. And that's what compromise leaves us with, the, un, the inability to see a way forward. But what I love about the goodness of God is that was not the end of Samson's story. Watch what it says in the next verse. It says, well, I'll jump down. That's on the next verse. Verse 22. However, the hair of his head began to grow again. 
And maybe you're at a place where you, do, you can identify with Samson. You say, man, I've made too many mistakes. I've fallen too far. I've done too much. The good news is there's no sin that can't be forgiven. There's no life that can't be restored. There's no addiction that can't be broken. There's no chain that can't be broken. There's no life that's too far from God. Jesus can redeem and restore. And this was not the, the greatest victory that Samson would ever have would come right after this. God's in the redemption business. The last one is allow ourselves to be burned out. When we allow ourselves to be worn down and fatigued, I just know that many people lose the gains they've taken, not because of necessarily some great compromise or some great sin, but they come to a place of fatigue. I would even call it battle fatigue. We get to a place where we become stressed, where we're no longer pouring in, we're giving out more than we're taking in, and we get burned out in life. There's lots of people that have disconnected from their purpose, that have, have ended up in a place that was, that was separated and disconnected, but it came from being first burned out. And things are out of alignment in my heart, just like your car has tires. When, you're, when your car's out of alignment, your tires wear down unevenly. And when things are out of alignment in my heart, there's areas of my life that I get worn down where I need to be built up. That's why our groups are so important. That's why our building our faith is so important. One last passage, and then I want to give you the positive real quick. Jason, if you want, and the team want to come up. When they start playing music, I know it's time to stop preaching. <laughs> Hebrews 12. Let me give you these two last verses, and then I'm going to quickly give you the four things that I believe out of this passage are the positive side of this that help us to maintain the gains we've experienced. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you're taking notes, four things from this passage that I believe will cause us to maintain the gains. The first one is what he says. He says we're surrounded. We're surrounded by witnesses. And, and I know he's talking about those who've gone before us and those who've, who fought the good fight and they've, they've taken ground themselves. You know, over the years, I grew a lot when I was younger because I got around people who didn't just have cool points. In fact, most of my mentors early on were like, Pentecostal grandmas. <laughs> Some of them were a little mean, but they love Jesus. No. Uh, but I learned from people that had been with God. They had been with God, and they had been where I wanted to go. And I've, I've, I've had, still have, people that pour, that pour into my life that, that they're, they've stayed faithful to their spouse. They've stayed faithful in their church. They've honored God. They've fought the fight. They've, they've loved people. They've done all those things. And I want to get around that because the world looks at short-term bursts and short-term success. But I want, to, I want to see the witnesses that have fought the fight, that stayed faithful when they were discouraged, that pushed through when all hell was against them. And here's what it says, we're surrounded, and I know that's the witnesses of heaven, and I know it's those generals of the faith that surround us, but I believe it's also what the church is to be. We need to live surrounded. We need to be surrounded. That's what our groups accomplish here at our church, is that we live surrounded with other people. They're gonna cheer us on. 
that aren't there to tell us all the things we're doing wrong, but to lift us up and encourage us and say, God has a plan. You're not done. Keep moving forward. They're going to pray us through difficult seasons. We all need that. I need that. We need to live surrounded with people who are going to pour in faith and hope and encouragement and also speak the truth when we need it. Number two, we need to lay aside every weight. He says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. I think it's interesting that he says weight and the sin because we know that sin can ensnare us and trap us. We've already talked about that, but there's some weights that are not sin. There's some weights that look like good things, but they're no longer necessary things and they're actually slowing us down. When a runner goes to run, they can't carry a lot of baggage or any. <laughs> they, they, they wear light clothing. They, they, they get the lightest running shoes and they get everything ready so that they have no extra encumbrances when they're running the race. And that's what he tells us here. He says, lay aside every weight. I think it's a good question to ask yourself when you leave church, what did I learn today or get from the word today? But it's just as important, and sometimes even more important, what did I leave there today? What, am I, what do I need to leave at church today? Because we're all going to leave the room. And some of us are going to take the burdens we came in here with. But some of us are going to lay down the burden of shame. Some of us are going to lay down the burden of fear. We're going to lay down the burden of anxiety and lay down the burden of trying to fix everything ourselves. What do you need to leave here today? I think the hardest thing for me in 18 years of ministry and serving Jesus is seeing people who've made incredible gains walk away from them, lose those gains because of all the things I've described to you today. First man who did mentor me wasn't much older than me. Had a passion and a hunger for Jesus. Loved reaching our city. Incredibly gifted. But then he started getting offended at people. Got offended at our pastor. Got offended at the church. Got pride filled. Thought his way was better than everybody else's way. Till eventually, he walked away from all of it. And he allowed the weight of unforgiveness and the weight of bitterness and pride to keep him from the purpose of God. What do you need to leave here today? The last thing I think is the most important. And it's the one, if you'll just do this one thing, it'll help with all the rest. He says, looking unto Jesus. We need to daily turn to Jesus. Because daily turning to Jesus will bring truth when we are believing the lies. When we're discouraged, he'll fill us with hope. When we're weary, he'll give us strength. And we need to look unto Jesus. Do you know when a runner is running his race, he can't look at the crowd. Some of us are so preoccupied with what everybody else is doing and, and worrying about who's gonna like our post. It, it cracks me out. We're like, I, I'm not gonna go to church because they're gonna judge me. Then we're on social media and we're putting our life out there for people to judge. And we're looking at everybody else's race, but the answer is not to look at somebody else, it's to look at Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, 
who overcame the cross through the joy set before him. And when you have your eyes on Jesus, you won't give up the ground you've attained through him. You won't surrender your calling and your purpose. You won't compromise your integrity. You'll move forward. And when you fall or when you fail, you'll go to the source of grace who is your answer in every failure and every season. He's the God who lifts us, forgives us, and restores us and launches us forward. And today, if you're in a place where you say, you know what, I wish I was where I used to be in my faith. Can I just tell you, with, when we turn our eyes to Jesus, not only can he get us back where we need to be, he can take us further than we've ever been. This is your new beginning this morning. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.